Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week we're featuring a Q&A from the 51st New Directors New Films with S. Kielvot, Director of The Innocents, moderated by FLC's Director of Programming, Dennis Lim. Perhaps best known as the co-screenwriter of acclaimed Norwegian director Joachim Trier's The Worst Person in the World, Eskil Vogt proves himself to be a filmmaker of astonishing skill and elemental force in his own right with his daring, supernatural thriller. Set during the summer at an apartment complex surrounded by an ominous, fairy tale like forest, The Innocence follows the sinister, increasingly alarming interactions of a group of prepubescent children. Ida, feeling ignored next to her autistic older sister Anna, the bullied Ben, and the angelic Aisha, who appears to communicate telepathically and feel through the nonverbal Anna. With unforgettable dark images and fleet visual storytelling, Boat's film pushes the evil children subgenre into a more philosophical territory, creating a morally askew universe controlled by a child's primitive understanding of the world. The Innocence opens this Friday in our theaters. For showtimes and tickets, go to filmlink.org slash innocence. Before the Q&A, listen to a programmer's preview of the 29th New York African Film Festival, now playing in our theaters and virtually nationwide through May 17th. Explore the lineup, filmmaker Q&As, info on a free digital art exhibition and free masterclass, and more at filmlink.org African. Hello, friends of the New York African Film Festival. And welcome to the 29th edition, co-presented by Film at Lincoln Center and African Film Festival in partnership with Maisel Cinema and Brooklyn Academy of Music. The festival opens on May 12th. It is presented under the banner Visions of Freedom. This year, we bring together pioneers and emerging filmmakers, giving them the opportunity to interact have intergenerational conversations as we look at works by emerging mid-career and veteran filmmakers. They tell us the story of their time and their aspirations for freedom. For this year's festival, we curated a roster of films tackling multiple subjects, all explored under the banner Visions of Freedom. Opening with Frida, a film by the acclaimed Haitian director Jessica Genus, this year, we're invested in revisiting the meaning of motherhood and family relationships while exploring the realities that come with experiencing the world as a Black subject in the 21st century. This year, we're talking drama, love stories, comedy, and thought-provoking films. Through films like Tug of War, Simply Black, The Gravedigger's Wife, and special events like our town hall panel, Arts and Activism, and a masterclass by the highly revered Haile Gurima, we will expand on the meaning of personal and collective freedoms set on the backdrop of a forever-changing political and social landscape. These films will invite you to reconsider the normal and further engage with your own relationship with the word freedom. The festival program centers personal and collective memories through documentary. From the careers of veteran filmmakers like Abderrahman Sissako and the leading actor of Semben's Black Girl, Nisim Teres Diop, the 29th iteration of this festival circles on the history of African cinema and a chance to view how far we have come. In emerging into newer voices, the documentary selections recall histories of, of liberation, from the dynamic sounds of Afro-Cuban jazz to dancers finding self-expression on stages around the world. We are excited to be in tune with African voices in climate change and engaging in conversations about our planet. We witness cinema fostering dialogue and bringing communities together 
to build collective modes of action. These films work to widen our horizons for hope and action in the 21st century. We're also very, very excited to be sharing with our audiences some bold and strong work featured in the short film programs. The short film format has always been a way for filmmakers to experiment and hold on their crafts and voices. This is reflected in our annual short film program dedicated to intimate stories told through the lenses of filmmakers based in New York, and of course in films from throughout Africa and the diaspora. We've got shorts programs that explore reflections on history, memory, and personal narratives in South Africa, shorts that evoke the sounds of liberation, self-expression, and love, and others that explore social, political, and cultural themes through stories of migration, resilience, and even a speculative envisioning of reparations. We've also got some experimental and animated shorts that are visually stunning and follow trajectories of personal evolutions and self-reflection through time and space. We We can't can't wait wait for you to see these films. So please join us at the 29th New York African Film Festival in theater or virtually. See you at the movies and thank you for your support. So please welcome back Eskil Vogt. So um, I'll start with a few and and then I'll I'll open it up to the audience. Um, I wanted to start with something you said in your introduction that you wouldn't have made this film if you didn't have kids. So it's kind of interesting to read the film as a response to parenthood. (laughs) I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on that. Was it having a kid that sort of, you know, brought you back to this world of childhood, specific memories it triggered or... Was yeah, it observing your kids? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's a lot about that. It's not based on my kids, uh, like, directly. <laughs> yeah, it, it's... Uh, I, uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be... to grow up and be, like, a teenager. And when I was a teenager, I wanted to be an adult. And I, after that, I didn't really look back. I wasn't... I mean, I had friends who had this kind of nostalgic uh, relationship with their childhood, always referencing the childhood when whatever subject arised, uh, I never was like that. And it was when I had kids, I suddenly would observe them, watch them, and suddenly something would trigger a memory of like something very ordinary, maybe, but it just would get a whiff of that feeling of being a child. And then suddenly, like I said in the introduction, I was just reminded how radically different you just uh, experience the world when you're a child and how you feel stuff and it's so open you don't know how things function you don't know what's possible or not and you're you're learning new stuff every day and everything's so elastic and open and you feel things in a different way and and you can't really hold on to that feeling as an adult so i just had like the, a moment of remembering that and then it would go away and also, like, observing my kids in everyday situations, I remember, like, picking up my daughter in kindergarten and arriving, I would see her with some other kids before she sees me. And I would see her running around with those kids, and she would be different in some way. It's hard to describe mm-hmm. exactly what way, but she was just another person. And then she would uh, discover me and say, hi, Dad, and then she would just become that person I, I knew, you know? But she had her own life right. there that she would never think of telling me about because she wouldn't think it was important. She already was 
thinking about something else or she didn't have the words to express that, but she had her own life there that I wasn't a part of. Can you, can you say a bit about this you know, idea of starting with wanting to explore this child's, child's view of the world, you know, childhood experience, and moving towards horror, towards the supernatural? Like, where did that come in? Well, one of the first ideas I had was about, very simply put, the magic of childhood. And I think the idea was, what if like a group of children were playing in something, while they were playing something magical, something inexplicable would happen, and they would just accept that as part of the game, and then they would go home to their parents, sit down at the dinner table, and that magic wasn't there anymore, and you would think that was just that was just their imagination, but what if in the context of the movie that magic was real? That, that, I think that was the start of the idea, and then, of course, if that magic is real, then the kids need to have some sort of powers, uh, and, and, and out of that, the kind of supernatural tale evolved, and also, if kids have powers, something bad will happen, because kids aren't supposed to have powers for very good reasons. <laughs> Um, I guess on that note, can you say a bit about the title of the film, The Innocence, which I think sort of, you know, like captures what the film is exploring psychologically and, and philosophically, but it is also the title of another film, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and I'm wondering how important that you felt it was to sort of be in conversation with this film by Jack Clayton from like the early 60s, which is based on the Henry James story. Yeah, based on Turn of the Screw. Yeah. Uh, it, it was, uh, I mean, I, I really liked that movie. It's a very good movie. Uh, and uh, when we named the movie uh, The Innocence in Norwegian, that movie wasn't uh. well known in Norway. And I think it maybe even had another title in Norwegian. So that wasn't a problem. But when we were going to make the international title, I was kind of, oh, we need to find something else because I don't want people to compare my movie to that great movie from the 60s, it would be like setting me up to fail in a way. And uh, But I just felt the title was such a good expression of some of the main themes. Uh, and some people say, oh, it's an ironic title, but I don't think so. It's more like a, a question. Uh, and it is about, I mean, kids are innocent, you know? It's a reason why you can't... Uh, yeah, put on a trial and, and send the kid to jail because they're not responsible for their actions yet, for very good reasons. They're not finished evolving. So, so that question is a real question, and the movie is a lot about how you evolve your own set of morals. And, uh, and so I felt, well, we need to keep it, even though people will compare me to <laughs> Jack Layton. I think it's quite a different film I, I think the the thing with uh, my movie is that a lot of people like in in di distributing a movie or in festival or if you make something that uh, resembles a horror movie people will try to find like the subgenre and they say oh you made a scary kids movie uh, and uh, uh, creepy kids or scary kids and 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 I think uh, Jack Clayton's Innocence in a way is that kind of movie mm -hmm. Uh, but that's, in a way, also the opposite of what I'm doing because those movies, they're about adults and they're looking at the kid like on the other side of the room and thinking, something's off here. 
is she possessed by the devil? Is uh, there some demons? Is there a ghost? You know, that kind of thing. And my movie is about being with the kids, understanding the kids, being in their inner circle, and it's the parents who are in the background. So uh, for me, it's kind of the opposite the, of that genre, but I understand why people need to put it in some sort of, uh, yeah, some sort of drawer. But re it really is a film in which the, the kids are completely dominant. Uh, and, you know, I, I was hoping you could say a little bit about casting and then working with the kids. I mean, there's, I'm sure casting was, was a long process. And I would imagine like, there are difficult scenes to, to work with children. So if you can say a bit about casting and directing act, uh, child actors. Well, it, it's when, when I write, when I write for myself or with you, Akim, I have this rule of never like thinking too much about practical problems because it's so uh, limiting uh, for your imagination. You have to let it run wild. And, uh, and there's so much you learn making movies that some stuff are very difficult and you need to like keep that out of the room. And then I ended up writing a movie with four very young kids and a cat. And you should never work with kids and animals. Okay, we should tell people rule. that the cat was not harmed. The cat was not harmed, obviously. You know, uh, I'm so embarrassed each time I was screening. There's so many people yeah, working gonna on a movie. We're going to preempt that question. It's uh, cinema. The cat was not harmed. So. We, we make like a six-minute end credit scroll. And the most important thing is in Norwegian, like no animals were harmed. We should have, should have that, that first in English in and have first in blinking. So many people are afraid that the cat was really hurt, uh, but it's fine. No, but, uh, but the, the children were is, also not hurt. In the the, yeah, but people don't care about that. They only care <laughs> about the cat. Yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, what after I've written the script and, and uh, me and my producer, Maria Ekerovd, is sitting right there, uh, yeah, we, we knew that that would be the main difficulty, was to find the right kids make it work with them. And so we put a lot of the budget into casting and working with the kids. And we spent over a year finding the right kids and then more time working with them, learning like uh, the basis of acting. So they could have, we had like a, a course for them where they could like each week we would work another emotion. Like this week it's fear, this week it's, uh, it's sadness, this week it's anger, this week it's like it's more like joy, and we would just give them the tools of, of finding those emotions and bringing them back up uh, on set. And, uh, and of course, we were very concerned about some of the scenes being difficult and uh, might traumatize them. And uh, so we over-prepared some of them, the talking about what was going to happen, whatever, and I was very... Very important uh, to me that we never surprised the kids in any way, so they knew everything that was going to happen. And sometimes with child actors, people like to, because they only have them for a couple of days, they want to like put them in situation and then maybe genuinely surprise them, so they get real reactions of surprise. And uh, I couldn't do that, and I didn't want to do that because if you surprise them like that one day and you need them for like 30 more days. What are they going to do? Like next, they're going like, okay, where's the where's the surprise? I needed them to really feel secure and and create this bond of trust. So we were always answering truthfully when they asked the question, and they learned everything. And and sometimes when we got to those scenes, I mean, I remember having told uh, the uh, the youngest girl who was seven who plays the role of Aisha, and I told her when she gave her the role that her character dies in the movie. 
And she didn't think of asking how until the day when we're going to rehearse that scene. And there were like these fake knives and a stunt person. And she picks up one of the fake knives and throws it in the air. Oh, this is how I die. Cool. You know? Uh, uh, and she had a lot of fun shooting that scene, which is, I think, one of the most painful uh, scenes in the movie. Uh, and also because... Uh, I mean, she was seven, and she was asking questions about the character's motivation and whatever, because she, she was so intelligent, and she really understood the difference, as all the actors did, between the character and themselves, between fiction and reality. And, and most kids that are good at acting, they do a lot of role-playing uh, games. They have, they're used to that kind of thing. So they, they thought it was fun to do the extreme stuff, you know? And, uh, and of course, in a movie, you only shoot, like, a small piece at a time, and kids are so uh, hyperactive, and they change mood in an instant. So we were doing like this moment of terror and panic, and I say cut, and then she would just do cartwheels over to the sound engineer and have fun with him. And I go, "No, oh, we need another take. Please come back here." And then, then she go back into that, back into that terror and, and uh, hyperventilation and being in that moment because she's a good actress, but also because she's a child. And they don't need that method kind of staying in the mood for hours uh, on end. They can just change like that, which also makes them fascinating to watch, I think, because kids can change like that. You know, that's, uh, that's the nature of their emotions. Can you talk about the decision to have, you know, one of the characters having autism? And I assume that was something that you also worked on in terms of researching it and figuring out how to portray that. Yeah, it was something that happened uh, early stages when I was beginning to to write and, and work on this. I, I just read an interview with a Norwegian writer. She was called Ulag Nilsen. Uh, and that was the first time she talked openly about her autistic son. And uh, she described something that she called regressive autism, which meant that her son evolved normally and communicated with language and uh, just like a normal kid until he was three or four. And then his language disappeared, and he became nonverbal autistic. And I just, for me as a parent, that's a horror movie. It just, it just, uh, I just kept thinking about it. That it felt so, because I mean, if your child is born with any disability or uh, or even nonverbal autistic, you you learn. Of I would assume to love that person as he or she is. But if you feel that that you lost something, you know? You, you, it will be very hard not to think, oh, inside of that person, my, my child is trapped, or it's a very difficult uh, grieving process. And, and I was thinking a lot about that until one point I said, maybe that's part of the movie, because I'm making a movie about that closed-off secret world of childhood, and what's more closed-off than a nonverbal uh, kid like that? So it just, it just came and, and then all that will be interesting if another child has some sort of uh, access to that person's feelings and thoughts and, and, and that storyline came out of that and of course then just added another layer of difficulty not only for kids and the cat but also one of the kids being uh, this very demanding role uh, and of course we couldn't cast a real uh, heavily autistic child because that person, nonverbal, not only couldn't play the scenes where the ch child uh, starts to 
to uh, speak, but also could never accept, I mean, give uh, our authorization to use uh, him or her in the in the film. So so that was the we needed to find someone who could do that. And actually, I'd written the role as a 14-year-old boy uh, because I thought we needed someone a bit older to play that role. And then there was this 10-year-old girl that came into the casting, and the casting director, she saw her like just spacing out while waiting and having this look, and she said, hmm, interesting. And we started to test her, uh, and she was just like a gift from the movie gods. She was so amazing. She had this ability just to act with her mouth open and like not showing that kind of self-consciousness because you, most kids feel they look unintelligent when they're, they, they'll close their mouth in like 10 seconds, you know, it, it, and she could just keep going like that. And she was such a good actress. So I, I have done, like you said, a lot of research so I could show her, oh, look at this uh, piece of documentary footage and see what this uh, autistic uh, kid does with his hands and uh, look what this autistic woman does when she's feeling joy and happiness. And then the next time we rehearse, I give her a chance to use that. And she would have picked up those gestures, like 10 years old. And she, uh, like a pro actress, and, uh, and she just kept amazing everyone with what she was doing. But uh, yeah. So I could just pass on some of that research I've done. Right. So you switched the role from male to female. Did you do that with the other parts, like in, in terms of switching? I mean, it's notable that the, the it's a, a multiracial cast, and I'm wondering if that was something you wrote into the script. Was there, you know, an attempt to get at a certain social dimension? Were you, you know, was it the idea of multiculturalism in Norway or were you, yeah, when did that, when did that enter the film? It, it was, there was a social dimension in the script, uh, but uh, I'd written all four roles as uh, white Norwegians because it was partly inspired by a, a place where I had spent some time when I was a kid and uh, that was the environment I, I lived in. But also when we found, it was two things. When uh, we found a place we wanted to shoot. That was a very culturally diverse place. Uh, so, I mean, casting should reflect that in some way. But it was also uh, my casting director. She said to me, you know, uh, how open can you be about these characters? Because if you have this very fixed idea of what they look like, that you want uh, someone to be blonde or whatever, you, you will miss out on a lot of people and you need quantity to find quality in those kind of casting situations. So she said, just try to be as open as possible. And, and then we decided just, okay, let's not care about the characters. Let's like for the first part of the casting, just find the most interesting kids possible and then see if we can fit them into the, uh, into the script. And we ended up uh, changing the sex or ethnicity of all four. There were two brothers, and the uh, and of course the other one changed uh, their yeah ethnicity. And then I was going to rewrite because um, that would change stuff, but it changed very little. It changed. Uh, I mean, there was a search in a place on their names. <laughs> that was uh, mostly it. And uh, and one of the mother, uh, the mother of Aisha, I I rewrote some of her dialogue to be in Somali, but. It was like the same script. It just added that dimension. And for me, it's a movie about childhood. And it, so 
the fact that they change gender or yeah, skin color doesn't change that uh, aspect of it, and the social dimension was already there in the script. Um, maybe I'll just ask one more, and then I'll open it up to the audience. One other thing that's very striking about the film is the uh, the visual language of the film. You use a lot of close-ups. Uh, I think in I think really successful, really strategic ways. But then you also use a lot of wide shots. And can you talk a little? Was that something you? wrote in or was that something you, you you know decided to do as you were shooting I, I wrote in a lot of the close-ups but not all but it was a big deal where I was uh, my uh, cinematographer uh, Stur Labrant Grevelin who's an amazing cinematographer uh, his latest work was uh, with the Thomas Winterberg film Another Round but he also did the, the German film uh, Victoria the one-shot movie uh, and he did the Rams, the Icelandic movie. He's a very talented, uh, talented cinematographer. And what we were talking about was that, firstly, for me, was most important thing was not to be scary, but to kind of rekindle those feelings of childhood in the spectator. And and, and for us, that the key to that was the way kids experience the world, which is not only with their eyes, but with their fingers. Kids are constantly touching stuff, you know? And we wanted to get the camera in there, even though it doesn't advance the plot, even though it doesn't make it more scary, we wanted to have those details of like a finger picking at the scab and, 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 and putting it in, uh, in her mouth. That is something most people have done when they were a child, and maybe that will make them think about that, and maybe a moment like that would appear to them, and suddenly they are uh, feeling the movie with their other senses, which I also feel like, how do you get cinema with the two senses that are actively uh, uh, involved? How do you get the other senses? How do you get the sensuous quality, the tactile quality? And the... I think the uh, the close-ups were really a big part of that. So we we had like this speech at the beginning of the of the shoot, uh, telling the crew that even though we are pressed for time, and you see me and Sturla, the cinematographer, making like a like the stupid thing of a nail, uh, like when we have so much to shoot, and we're doing this uh, shot uh, close up. We, we're not crazy. We haven't lost it. It's 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 an important part of the movie to get those shots in. So and we managed to do that the whole way through to keep that uh, that thing alive. And also, we wanted to have that, as you said, that juxtaposition between those close ups and the and the wider shots, which give more of a feeling sometimes of the powers and the wind in the trees but also the fact that the adults can walk right past and don't notice anything that's going on all right we'll open it up and take your questions uh i think we have yeah we have a microphone so if you raise your hand we will get a microphone to you uh hi uh i really enjoyed the movie i just have one question about uh Stephen King, because I think this movie remind me a lot of the writing of Stephen King, and also in uh, in another movie that you worked with, uh, Walking Trim, uh, uh, Thelma, that also I think has some kind of a Stephen King esque elements in it. So I just want to, uh, can you talk a little bit more about like is is this like actually an influence by Stephen King or just a co coincidence? I was a big Stephen King reader when I was in my teens, so uh, it's probably ingrained in me. <laughs> I mean, uh, and I'm uh, 
big fan of a, a lot of uh, Stephen King adaptations. We were just talking about uh, The Dead Zone by David Cronenberg, uh, uh, and uh, which was an influence on the opening credits. That <laughs> I kind of did like the inverse of what Cronenberg does in the opening of Dead Zone. So of course it's not it's not purely coincidental, but I didn't have like any. I'm doing this or inspired by that novel here, I was just very conscious that I wasn't doing the same thing as It, which uh, movie that came out uh, while we were financing the, uh, this uh, film. Uh, uh, but uh, actually he did one non-fiction book called Dance Macabre, uh, where he has very interesting uh, thoughts about childhood. And, and that was actually an inspiration, um, those the, the reflections he did in that book. Uh, I think we have quite a few uh, there and then there. And also, we'll get up. Yeah, we'll get you. Yes, I enjoyed the movie a lot. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit about um, the evil in the movie. Because Anna, for instance, at the beginning, the first scene, she pinches uh, the leg of her sister, and she deliberately uh, steps on a worm when she faces the, the lake. So I was wondering if you could speak about the evil in kids, which is a tremendously fascinating topic. <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, I think it's also interesting that just a question of evil, which is uh, maybe a difference from Stephen King, which was something that I was thinking a lot about was that Stephen King and a lot of people who write and make horror movies, they really believe in evil as almost like an exterior force in the world that can take over or influence us. And, and I don't believe in that. I, I don't believe in evil. I think good and evil are just words that we use to describe the impulses and feelings we have. And some of those feelings are very antisocial and we need to find a way to control them to fit into society and be a productive member of society. And uh, I think a lot of that plays out in childhood because we have those feelings of anger and jealousy that can completely take over. And we also have more good impulses and rational impulses and, and that we need to figure that out, you know? And, and, and kids have a tough time doing that because I mean, even adults have a tough time dealing with anger. And how can you yeah, ask of a 10-year-old boy to control those feelings? And it was very important to me that all of the characters had some good and some evil, that they, they, they were, there was not like one evil kid, even though the one Ben Benjamin character becomes the most dangerous, it was very important to me, and that's also why I cast that actor, because I knew he could convey that, that he was also just a kid. He was also just a victim of circumstance, of his background, of his uh, powers that he shouldn't have, and, 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 uh, and I think he reminds us of that. But you see in a lot of horror movies, it's very Catholic. It's very black and white. It's very easy. That's the bad, that's the good, and at the end, uh, hopefully, good triumphs. And here, I, th I hopefully, it's more ambiguous. 
uh, and you left with even like a, a sadness, even for Benjamin at the end, hopefully. You know, so it's very important to me that there was no pure evil in the movie, and uh, but also to show that we all have these impulses, and it's very like the main character Ida she has very cool impulses and what I dis what when I was doing research when I was thinking about the movie I talked to people and most people I talked to had very vivid memories of being cruel as a child of and stepping on the rainworm is like the the, the, the smallest uh, of those things you know it's usually people have done much cooler things to animal or the kids or younger siblings. Younger siblings have really suffered through a lot. Uh, and, and, uh, and I was thinking, why is that? Why do we feel the need to test those limits, to experiment, to be cool when we are children? And, and I think one of the reasons is that uh, we are in the process of leaving behind our first set of values and morals. We came just like the, our parents, set of morals, which is like my, your mother saying, never do that, or your father say, always be polite, or you have all those sets of values that you, 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 you use as a guide, but at one point you have to do something your mother said you shouldn't do, just to feel if you really feel bad about it. You, know? you have to try and test those things, and I think a lot of those experiences that you have when you go too far as a kid makes it possible for you to have a set of values that are your own, that are ingrained in you, that are your own set of morals. You say moral compass in, in Norwegian. I don't know if that's an expression in English. Yeah. Um, I had a quick question about, as you were writing this, did you imagine the kids to have an understanding that they were doing something wrong? Or was it more so that they were just, they didn't really understand kind of like the consequences of their actions and stuff? Well, uh, the kids, that, that depends from situation to situation. And I think a lot of what kids do is that they don't really think through the, all the consequences. So they might be, I mean, I think Ida is very conscious when she puts the shard of glass in her sister's shoe that she's doing something cruel. But uh, she doesn't really think about the consequences until she sees her sister walking around with it and probably feeling pain, even though she can't express it in a normal way. And uh, I think that's very much what happens a lot is that they do stuff. And I feel we have impulses that might also be just curiosity. So I think partly dropping a cat from a height comes from that, that curiosity. You learn that they always land on their feet. And part of you want to just check if that test it out see if it's real and then it's afterwards you realize oh shit that maybe wasn't such a good idea um, so it, it, i think it's that kind of uh, of mixture and uh, and they go too far and realize after but they have some consciousness of what they're doing is wrong i think did the actors talk to you did you have those kinds of conversations with the actors well uh not exactly not a that level, yeah. but uh, of course they were sometimes curious about why the character would do something like that, and we would discuss it. And uh, but they, they, they kind of—I mean, they—they 
they they understood a lot of it, you know, even though they wouldn't do the same thing, uh, obviously. But they they had some, and and with some scenes we didn't do a lot of improvisation during the shooting. But when we did, you could really see they they had a fun with those darker impulses. They could sure. really they they had it in them. It's kind of liberating yeah. to be in another character's skin. And, and explore them, and they uh, they really could. Okay, I think uh, you had a question over here. Was there a question down here? Hi, thank you so much for being here. Um, my initial question was similar to hers in that I was curious about um, this fact that we don't have a, I mean, there is a clear antagonist per se, but um, there are hints that he also is not purely evil um, and not not designed that way. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about the fact that you chose to have him uh, die at the end, um, which felt at some point like the only way the film could end, uh, and and whether that speaks to whether he can be redeemed. Are you saying if things had been handled differently that this boy could have been redeemed or not? Um, and as a parent, um, observing or spending a, little, a lot of time with little kids, um, the parents in the film obviously were either sort of not able to be in, uh, there or were actually a source of fear and pain. Um, so what is the ideal role, uh, to your mind, of a good parent in shaping the destiny of their child? I wish I knew. Uh, it, the, the problem with making a movie about stuff like that is people uh, ask you questions and suddenly I, I find myself answering like I know what a good parent is and I'm, I'm a parent I have two kids myself and I definitely don't know what <laughs> what the answer is to that question what, what I feel is a very difficult thing as a parent is that uh, regarding this movie is that you are afraid to let them go out in the world and explore it on their own and make mistakes and maybe be cruel and maybe regret something and and uh, and my generation of of, uh, of parents, uh, probably the same here as in Norway, are very involved in their kids. And my kids have less time completely alone than I did when I was a child. And I think they need that time when the parents aren't watching. It, it's a very important time, but that feels like a lack of control as a parent. Like what? What if they do that? What if they hurt themselves? What if they hurt someone else? And, but they need to be out in the world making mistakes you know, and experiencing stuff. And I find that a difficult role to, to manage as a, as a father. Uh, and uh, the other question was about uh, the, uh, if he had been needed to die or if he could be redeemed. I think he could be redeemed. I think uh, a child can be redeemed at any point point you know that they're not beyond saving uh, and he has very obviously different points where uh, it would be easier for him to roll back and and and, uh, and uh, not commit these uh, terrible things that he does uh, but uh, I think even at the end I think it could have ended differently for him but of course in the logic of the movie and the logic of the other kids it's too dangerous for him for to to try that. You know, it uh, it uh, it's not a viable solution. So it ends like that, 
and it always did in the script. Uh, and I think uh, you have to feel the need for that to happen, but also hopefully, like I said earlier, uh, an ambivalence that it's sad at the same time. So we, um, I'm just going to have to ask one final question since we have a screening starting. Um, when we showed the Oslo trilogy here, we invited you and Joachim to program a series around it. And it was full of really interesting choices, like some expected and some very unexpected. So if we invited you to program a small series of films around the innocents, can you just name a few quickly? Off the top of my head like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing is that when I, uh, I'm usually, I'm very, I'm obviously a film buff and I love movies, but when I was making The Innocence, I didn't revisit a lot of movies because of, I was just, there's so many movies about supernatural abilities and uh, all that. And, and, and I didn't want mm. to feel I was making another one of those. Yeah. I wanted to make, I, 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 I want to make a movie about childhood. So what I did re watch was like some of the classics about childhood like uh, Jacques Doyon's Ponette oh, yeah. with uh, I think she's four or five yeah. the the girl who, who plays the lead and there's a beautiful documentary made about how difficult it was that gave me a lot of hope uh, and uh, uh, so so those would be interesting to screen and uh, and uh, and I also did s steal an idea from uh, from uh, a movie called L'Enfance Nue. Mm, uh, uh, Maurice Piala's. Maurice Piala's uh, first something feature. Something bad happens to a cat too. In that there, there's uh, <laughs> there's uh, something bad. That that's where the cat thing uh, came from, actually. So uh, I would have to select that one to just acknowledge uh, my uh, my inspiration. Yeah. All right. Um, well, thank you so much for being here, and Eskil, thanks so much for the film and program. Thank you. Thank you.